0: chapter nine of the moonstone by wilkie collins this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by tony addison chapter eight here for one moment i find it necessary to call a halt on summoning up my own recollections and on getting Penelope to help me, by consulting her journal, I find that we may pass pretty rapidly over the interval between Mr. Franklin Blake's arrival and Miss Rachel's birthday. For the greater part of that time the days passed, and brought nothing with them worth recording. With your good leave, then, and with Penelope's help, I shall notice certain dates only in this place.' reserving to myself to tell the story day by day once more, as soon as we get to the time when the business of the moonstone became the chief business of everybody in our house. This said, we may now go on again, beginning, of course, with the bottle of sweet-smelling ink which I found on the gravel walk at night. On the next morning, the morning of the 26th, I showed Mr. Franklin this article of jugglery, and told him what I have already told you. His opinion was, not only that the Indians had been lurking about after the diamond, but also that they were actually foolish enough to believe in their own magic, meaning thereby the making of signs on a boy's head, and the pouring of ink into a boy's hand, and then expecting him to see persons and things beyond the reach of human vision. In our country, as well as in the East, Mr. Franklin informed me, there are people who practice this curious hocus-pocus, without the ink, however, and who call it by a French name. "'signifying something like brightness of sight. "'Depend upon it,' says Mr. Franklin. "'The Indians took it for granted that we would keep the diamond here, "'and they brought their clairvoyant boy to show them the way to it, "'if they succeeded in getting into the house last night. "'Do you think they'll try again, sir?' I asked. "'It depends,' says Mr. Franklin.' on what the boy can really do. If he can see the diamond through the iron safe of the bank at freezing Hall, we shall be troubled with no more visits from the Indians for the present. If he can't, we shall have another chance of catching them in the shrubbery before many more nights are over our heads. I waited pretty confidently for that latter chance, but, strange to relate, it never came whether the jugglers heard in the town of Mr. Franklin having been seen at the bank, and drew their conclusions accordingly, or whether the boy really did see the diamond where the diamond was now lodged, which I, for one, flatly disbelieve, or whether, after all, it was a mere effect of chance. This, at any rate, is the plain truth. "'Not the ghost of an Indian came near the house again "'through the weeks that passed before Miss Rachel's birthday. "'The jugglers remained in and about the town, "'plying their trade, "'and Mr. Franklin and I remained waiting to see what might happen, "'and resolute not to put the rogues on their guard "'by showing our suspicions of them too soon.' with this report of the proceedings on either side ends all that i have to say about the indians for the present on the twenty-ninth of the month miss rachel and mr franklin hit on a new method of working their way together through the time which might otherwise have hung heavy on their hands there are reasons for taking particular notice here of the occupation that amused them. You will find it has a bearing on something that is still to come. Gentle folks in general have a very awkward rock ahead in life, the rock ahead of their own idleness, their lives being for the most part, passed in looking about them for something to do, it is curious to see, especially when their tastes are of what is called the intellectual sort, how often they drift blindfold into some nasty pursuit. Nine times out of ten they take to torturing something, or to spoiling something, and they firmly believe they are improving their minds, when the plain truth is they are only making a mess in the house. I have seen them, ladies, I am sorry to say, as well as gentlemen, go out day after day, for example, with empty pill-boxes, and catch newts, and beetles, and spiders, and frogs, and come home, and stick pins through the miserable wretches, or cut them up without a pang of remorse into little pieces. You see, my young master, or my young mistress, poring over one of their spiders' insides with a magnifying glass, or you meet one of their frogs walking downstairs without his head. And when you wonder what this cruel nastiness means, you are told that it means a taste in my young master or my young mistress for natural history. Sometimes, again, you see them occupied for hours together, IN SPOILING A PRETTY FLOWER WITH POINTED INSTRUMENTS, OUT OF A STUPID CURIOSITY, TO KNOW WHAT A FLOWER IS MADE OF. IS ITS COLOUR ANY PRETTIER, OR ITS scent ANY SWEETER, WHEN YOU DO KNOW? BUT THERE, THE POOR SOULS MUST GET THROUGH THE TIME, YOU SEE, THEY MUST GET THROUGH THE TIME. YOU DABBLED IN NASTY MUD AND MADE PIES WHEN YOU WERE A CHILD. "'and you dabble in nasty science "'and dissect spiders and spoil flowers "'when you grow up. "'In the one case and in the other, "'the secret of it is "'that you have got nothing to think of "'in your poor empty head "'and nothing to do with your poor idle hands. "'And so it ends "'in your spoiling canvas with paints "'and making a smell in the house.' or in keeping tadpoles in a glass box full of dirty water, and turning everybody's stomach in the house, or in chipping off bits of stone, here, there, and everywhere, and dropping grit into all the victuals in the house, or in staining your fingers in the pursuit of photography, and doing justice without mercy on everybody's face in the house, it often falls heavy enough, no doubt, on people who are really obliged to get their living, to be forced to work for the clothes that cover them, the roof that shelters them, and the food that keeps them going. But compare the hardest day's work you ever did with the idleness that splits flowers and pokes its way into spiders' stomachs, and thank your stars that your head has got something it must think of. And your hands something that they must do. As for Mr. Franklin and Miss Rachel, they tortured nothing, I am glad to say. They simply confined themselves to making a mess, and all they spoilt to do them justice was the panelling of a door. And Mr. Franklin's universal genius, dabbling in everything— dabbled in what he called decorative painting he had invented he informed us a new mixture to moisten paint with which he described as a vehicle what it was made of i don't know what it did i can tell you in two words it stank miss rachel being wild to try her hand at the new process mr franklin sent to london for the materials mixed them up with accompaniment of a smell which made the very dog sneeze when they came into the room put an apron and a bib over miss rachel's gown and set at her to work decorating her own little sitting-room called for want of english to name it in her boudoir they began with the inside of the door mr franklin scraped off all the nice varnish with pumice stone, and made what he described as a surface to work on. Miss Rachel then covered the surface under his directions, and with his help, with patterns and devices, griffins, birds, flowers, cupids, and such like, copied from designs made by a famous Italian painter whose name escapes me. "'the one, I mean, who stocked the world with Virgin Mary's "'and had a sweetheart at the baker's. "'Viewed as work, this decoration was slow to do and dirty to deal with, "'but our young lady and gentleman never seemed to tire of it. "'When they were not riding or seeing company "'or taking their meals or piping their songs, "'there they were with their heads together as busy as bees, spoiling the door. Who was the poet who said that Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do? If he had occupied my place in the family, and had seen Miss Rachel with her brush, and Mr. Franklin with his vehicle, he could have written nothing truer of either of them than that. The next date worthy of notice is Sunday the 4th of June. On that evening— we in the servants' hall debated a domestic question for the first time which like the decoration of the door has its bearing on something that is still to come seeing the pleasure which mr franklin and miss rachel took in each other's society and noting what a pretty match they were in all personal respects we naturally speculated on the chance of their putting their heads together with other objects in view besides the ornamenting of a door. Some of us said there would be a wedding in the house before the summer was over. Others, led by me, admitted it was likely enough Miss Rachel might be married, but we doubted, for reasons which will presently appear, whether her bridegroom would be Mr. Franklin Blake. That Mr. Franklin was in love on his side, nobody who saw and heard him could doubt. The difficulty was to fathom Miss Rachel. Let me do myself the honour of making you acquainted with her, after which I will leave you to fathom for yourself, if you can. My young lady's eighteenth birthday was the birthday now coming on the twenty-first of June. If you happen to like dark women, who, I am informed, "'have gone out of fashion latterly in the gay world. "'And if you have no particular prejudice in favour of size, "'I answer for Miss Rachel as one of the prettiest girls your eyes ever looked on. "'She was small and slim, but all in fine proportion from top to toe. "'To see her sit down, to see her get up, and specially to see her walk, "'was enough to satisfy any man in his senses.' that the graces of her figure, if you will pardon me the expression, were in her flesh, and not in her clothes. Her hair was the blackest I ever saw. Her eyes matched her hair. Her nose was not quite large enough, I admit. Her mouth and chin were, to quote Mr. Franklin, morsels for the gods, and her complexion, on the same undeniable authority, was as warm as the sun itself, with this great advantage over the sun, that it was always in nice order to look at. Add to the foregoing, that she carried her head as upright as a dart, in a dashing, spirited, thoroughbred way, that she had a clear voice, with a ring of the right metal in it and a smile that began very prettily in her eyes before it got to her lips, and there behold the portrait of her, to the best of my painting, as large as life. And what about her disposition next? Had this charming creature no faults? She had just as many faults as you have, ma'am, neither more nor less. To put it seriously, my dear pretty Miss Rachel, Possessing a host of graces and attractions had one defect, which strict impartiality compels me to acknowledge. She was, unlike most other girls of her age in this, that she had ideas of her own, and was stiff-necked enough to set the fashions themselves at defiance if the fashions didn't suit her views. In trifles, this independence of hers was all well enough, but in matters of importance it carried her, as my lady thought, and as I thought, too far. She judged for herself, as few women of twice her age judge in general, never asked your advice, never told you beforehand what she was going to do, never came with secrets and confidences to anybody from her mother downwards. In little things and great, with people she loved and people she hated, and she did both with equal heartiness. Miss Rachel always went on a way of her own, sufficient for herself in the joys and sorrows of her life. Over and over again I have heard my lady say, Rachel's best friend and Rachel's worst enemy are one and the other, Rachel herself. Add one thing more to this, and I have done— with all her secrecy and self-will, there was not so much as the shadow of anything false in her. I never remember her breaking her word. I never remember her saying no and meaning yes. I can call to mind in her childhood more than one occasion when the good little soul took the blame and suffered the punishment for some fault committed by a playfellow whom she loved. Nobody ever knew her to confess to it when the thing was found out, and she was charged with it afterwards, but nobody ever knew her to lie about it either. She looked you straight in the face, and shook her little saucy head and said plainly, I won't tell you. Punished again for this, she would own to being sorry for saying won't, but bread and water notwithstanding, she never told you. Self-willed devilish self-will sometimes, I grant, but the finest creature, nevertheless, that ever walked the ways of this lower world. Perhaps you think you see a certain contradiction here. In that case, a word in your ear. Study your wife closely for the next four-and-twenty hours. If your good lady doesn't exhibit something in the shape of a contradiction in that time, heaven help you. You have married a monster." i have now brought you acquainted with miss rachel which you will find puts us face to face next with the question of that young lady's matrimonial views on june the twelfth an invitation from my mistress was sent to a gentleman in london to come and help to keep miss rachel's birthday this was the fortunate individual on whom i believed her heart to be privately set like Mr. Franklin, he was a cousin of hers. His name was Mr. Godfrey Ablewhite, My Lady's Second Sister Don't be alarmed. We are not going very deep into family matters this time. My Lady's Second Sister, I say, had a disappointment in love, and taking her husband afterwards on the neck-or-nothing principle, made what they call a misalliance. There was terrible work in the family when the Honourable Caroline insisted on marrying plain Mr. Ablewhite, the banker at Freezing Hall. He was very rich and very respectable, and he begot a prodigious large family all in his favour so far. But he had presumed to raise himself from a low station in the world, and that was against him. However, time and the progress of modern Enlightenment put things right, and the misalliance passed muster very well. We are all getting liberal now, and, provided you can scratch me if I scratch you, what do I care, in or out of Parliament, whether you are a dustman or a duke? That's the modern way of looking at it, and I keep up with the modern way. The Abelwhites lived in a fine house and grounds, a little out of freezing Very worthy people, and greatly respected in the neighbourhood. We shall not be much troubled with them in these pages, excepting Mr. Godfrey, who was Mr. Abelwhite's second son, and who must take his proper place here, if you please, for Miss Rachel's sake with all his brightness and cleverness and general good qualities. Mr. Franklin's chance of topping Mr. Godfrey, in our young lady's estimation, was, in my opinion, a very poor chance indeed. In the first place, Mr. Godfrey was, in point of size, the finest man by far of the two. He stood over six feet high, he had a beautiful red-and-white colour, a smooth round face, shaved as bare as your hand, and a head of lovely long flaxen hair, falling negligently over the pole of his neck. But why do I try to give you this personal description of him? If you ever subscribe to a lady's charity in London, you know Mr. Godfrey Ablewhite as well as I do. He was a barrister by profession— a lady's man by temperament, and a good Samaritan by choice. Female benevolence and female destitution could do nothing without him. Maternal societies for confining poor women, Magdalene societies for rescuing poor women, strong-minded societies for putting poor women into poor men's places, and leaving the men to ship for themselves. He was vice-president, manager, referee to them all. Whenever there was a table with a committee of ladies sitting round it in council, there was Mr. Godfrey at the bottom of the board, keeping the temper of the committee, and leading the dear creatures along the thorny ways of business, hat in hand. I do suppose this was the most accomplished philanthropist, more than independence that England ever produced. As a speaker at charitable meetings, the like of him for drawing your tears and your money was not easy to find. He was quite a public character. The last time I was in London, my mistress gave me two treats. She sent me to the theatre to see a dancing woman who was all the rage, and she sent me to Exeter Hall dear Mr. Godfrey. The lady did it with a band of music, the gentleman did it with a handkerchief and a glass of water, crowds at the performance with the legs, ditto at the performance with the tongue, and with all this the sweetest-tempered person I allude to Mr. Godfrey, the simplest and pleasantest and easiest to please you ever met with. He loved everybody, and everybody loved him. What chance had Mr. Franklin, what chance had anybody of average reputation and capacities, against such a man as this? On the 14th came Mr. Godfrey's answer. He accepted my mistress's invitation from the Wednesday of the birthday to the evening of Friday, when his duties to the ladies' charities would oblige him to return to town he also enclosed a copy of verses on what he elegantly called his cousin's natal day miss rachel i was informed joined mr franklin in making fun of the verses at dinner and penelope who was all on mr franklin's side asked me in great triumph what i thought of that miss rachel has led you off on a false scent, my dear, I replied, but my nose is not so easily mystified. Wait till Mr. Ablewhite's verses are followed by Mr. Abelwhite himself. My daughter replied that Mr. Franklin might strike in and try his luck before the verses were followed by the poet. In favor of this view, I must acknowledge "'that Mr. Franklin left no chance untried "'of winning Miss Rachel's good graces. "'Though one of the most inveterate smokers I ever met with, "'he gave up his cigar, "'because she said one day "'she hated the stale smell of it in his clothes. "'He slept so badly after this effort of self-denial "'for want of the composing effects of the tobacco to which he was used, "'and came down morning after morning looking so haggard and warm, that Miss Rachel herself begged him to take to his cigars again. No, he would take to nothing again that could cause her a moment's annoyance. He would fight it out resolutely, and get back his sleep sooner or later, by main force of patience in waiting for it. Such devotion as this, you may say, as some of them said downstairs, could never fail of producing the right effect on Miss Rachel." "'backed up too, as it was, "'by the decorating work every day on the door. "'All very well. "'But she had a photograph of Mr. Godfrey in her bedroom, "'represented speaking at a public meeting, "'with all his hair blown out by the breath of his own eloquence, "'and his eyes most lovely, "'charming the money out of your pockets. "'What do you say to that?' "'Every morning.' as Penelope herself owned to me. There was the man whom the women couldn't do without, looking on in effigy, while Miss Rachel was having her hair combed. He would be looking on in reality before long. That was my opinion of it. June the 16th brought an event which made Mr. Franklin's chance look to my mind a worse chance than ever. A strange gentleman, speaking English with a foreign accent, came that morning to the house, and asked to see Mr. Franklin Blake on business. The business could not possibly have been connected with the diamond for these two reasons. First, that Mr. Franklin told me nothing about it. Secondly, that he communicated it, when the gentleman had gone, as I suppose, to my lady she probably hinted something about it next to her daughter at any rate miss rachel was reported to have said some severe things to mr franklin at the piano that evening about the people he had lived among and the principles he had adopted in foreign parts the next day for the first time nothing was done towards the decoration of the door i suspect some imprudence of mr franklin's on the continent with a woman or a debt at the bottom of it, had followed him to England, but that is all guesswork. In this case, not only Mr. Franklin, but my lady too, for a wonder, left me in the dark. On the seventeenth, to all appearance, the cloud passed away again. They returned to their decorating work on the door, and seemed to be as good friends as ever. If Penelope was to be believed, Mr. Franklin had seized the opportunity of the reconciliation to make an offer to Miss Rachel, and had neither been accepted nor refused. My girl was sure, from signs and tokens which I need not trouble you with, that her young mistress had fought Mr. Franklin off by declining to believe that he was in earnest, and had then secretly regretted treating him in that way afterwards.' though Penelope was admitted to more familiarity with her young mistress than maids generally are, for the two had been almost brought up together as children, still I knew Miss Rachel's reserved character too well to believe that she would show her mind to anybody in this way. What my daughter told me on the present occasion was, as I suspected, more what she wished than what she really knew. On the nineteenth, another event happened. We had the doctor in the house professionally. He was summoned to prescribe for a person whom I have had occasion to present to you in these pages. Our second housemaid, Rosanna Spearman. This poor girl, who had puzzled me, as you know already, at the shivering Sand, puzzled me more than once again in the interval time of which I am now writing. Penelope's notion that her fellow-servant was in love with Mr. Franklin, which my daughter by my orders kept strictly secret, seemed to be just as absurd as ever. But I must own that what I myself saw, and what my daughter saw also, of our second housemaid's conduct, began to look mysterious, to say the least of it. For example, the girl constantly put herself in Mr. Franklin's way very slyly and quietly, but she did it. He took about as much notice of her as he took of the cat. It never seemed to occur to him to waste a look on Rosanna's plain face. The poor thing's appetite never much, fell away dreadfully, and her eyes in the morning showed plain signs of waking and crying at night. One day Penelope made an awkward discovery, which we hushed up on the spot, she caught Rosanna at Mr. Franklin's dressing-table, secretly removing a rose which Miss Rachel had given him to wear in his buttonhole, and putting another rose like it of her own picking in its place. She was, after that, once or twice impudent to me, when I gave her a well-meant general hint to be careful in her conduct, and worse still, she was not over-respectful now, "'on the few occasions when Miss Rachel accidentally spoke to her. "'My lady noticed the change, and asked me what I thought about it. "'I tried to screen the girl by answering that I thought she was out of health, "'and it ended in the doctor being sent for, as already mentioned, on the 19th. "'He said it was her nerves, and doubted if she was fit for service.' "'my lady offered to remove her for change of air to one of our farms inland. "'She begged and prayed, with the tears in her eyes, to be let to stop, "'and in an evil hour I advised my lady to try her for a little longer. "'As the event proved, and as you will soon see, "'this was the worst advice I could have given. "'If I could only have looked a little way into the future,' "'I would have taken Rosanna Spearman out of the house "'then and there with my own hand. "'On the twentieth there came a note from Mr Godfrey. "'He had arranged to stop at Frizinghall that night, "'having occasion to consult his father on business. "'On the afternoon of the next day "'he and his two eldest sisters "'would ride over to us on horseback "'in good time before dinner. "'An elegant little casket in China accompanied the note, presented to Miss Rachel, with her cousin's love and best wishes. Mr. Franklin had only given her a plain locket, not worth half the money. My daughter Penelope, nevertheless, such is the obstinacy of women, still backed him to whim. Thanks, Peter Heaven, we have arrived at the eve of the birthday at last. You will own, I think, that I have got you over the ground this time, without much loitering by the way. Cheer up. I'll ease you with another new chapter here, and what is more, that chapter shall take you straight into the thick of the story. End of chapter 9